Okay, so our next speaker um, is Dr. Uh, Stephen Johnson, um, who is professor of medicine at the University of Colorado in Denver. Um, and he's going to give us um, a talk on optimizing outcomes of HIV infections through comprehensive primary care. And as many of you are uh, frontline HIV providers, I think this will be particularly useful for you all. So I was actually asked to talk about uh, this subject, optimizing outcomes uh, through uh, primary care. This is obviously a, a large subject uh, for 30 minutes, and so I, I'll concentrate on certain areas that I think are, uh, are important. I have no relevant uh, financial uh, affiliations to disclose. So what I want to do uh, over the next 30 minutes is first outline what I consider the components of what we call HIV primary care, uh, describe the impact of comorbidities on patient outcomes, identify strategies to enhance cardiovascular risk assessment and cancer screening, and then apply updated guidelines on immunizations uh, in persons living with HIV. This is what I consider the elements of, of comprehensive HIV primary care. I suspect many of you uh, may manage your patients all on your own. Uh, some of you may have arrangements with uh, other groups, uh, primary care physicians, uh, family practitioners, internists, that kind of uh, setup. But the, these are the five areas that I think are important. Obviously, the expert management of HIV infection that uh, we've been comfortable with over the years. Uh, the management of, of common comorbidities, uh, including hepatitis B, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, uh, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, non-AIDS cancers, and mental health conditions. Obviously, managing conditions that may not be due to HIV infection, but may just be predestined uh, in individual patients, preventive health screenings and immunizations, and I think we have a special role, too, in terms of risk reduction and prevention of HIV transmission. I think one way to think about what to emphasize in primary care is to, is to look at outcomes, look at morbidity and mor uh, mortality, and then uh, work backwards. So this is a, a year ago from the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infection, a study looking uh, within uh, Kaiser, California, matching uh, HIV patients uh, to HIV-negative patients, uh, uh, one HIV patient for 10 HIV-negative patients, and looking at both mortality rate uh, which is the solid lines, and uh, life expectancy, which are the dots. The red represents HIV-positive persons, and the blue represents uh, HIV-negative uh, persons. And I think there's a couple things to take away from this slide. First of all, of course, there's been a dramatic reduction in mortality over time uh, that really dates to the advent of antiretroviral therapy in the mid-1990s. And then there's been a more gradual decline in the antiretroviral era. But at least as of 2011, which is where this study ends, there still is a difference between persons living with HIV and uh, persons uh, without HIV infection, both in terms of life expectancy and uh, rates of mortality. I should point out on the right side of the graph that's expected years of life rem remaining at age 20. So you have, to, you have to add 20 to those numbers to look at life expectancy. So 85 for HIV negative individuals, 73 for HIV positive individuals. So we'll go to your first uh, audience response question, um, which is what is the leading cause of death in persons living with HIV infection in the United States? Is it AIDS class C conditions, mental health conditions, and substance use? 
Is it liver disease, non-AIDS cancers, cardiovascular disease, or is it other conditions? So I asked for Beatles, of course. So. I think members of Queen were actually Beatle fans, so. Here comes the sun. So most of you actually picked uh, cardiovascular disease, and there actually might be several uh, right answers in the setting depending on the group of patients that you're taking care of. So for example, if you have an inner city clinic in Baltimore with high rates of hepatitis C co-infection, complications of liver disease might be more prevalent than in uh, other another clinical setting. But let's look at some of the data. And uh, I first want to introduce kind of uh, the common comorbidities that, that we deal with in clinical practice. These are conditions that are often quite a bit more common in people living uh, with HIV than in the general population. Uh, uh, depression, bipolar disease, polysubstance use, human papillomavirus infection, viral hepatitis B and C, uh, syphilis and other sexually transmitted infections, certainly part of the world's uh, tuberculosis and the other items that are listed here, uh, including uh, osteoporosis and non-AIDS cancers. Now at the program that I'm involved with uh, at the University of Colorado, we've actually been prospectively measuring mortality in our clinic population as a, as a quality improvement project, not really as a research study. And I'm just showing some of the data over the last 15 years or so where we've looked at mortality and to the best of our ability have assigned cause of death. And uh, the green represents AIDS class C conditions using the 1993 definition. Red represents uh, all other deaths, which I've used the term non-AIDS deaths. And you can see the overall mortality rate is about 1% per year. But you can see in the antiretroviral era, uh, I think, and other studies have shown this, that there's a continued decline in AIDS-related uh, uh, deaths, and more and more a proportion of the deaths are due to other reasons. This has been studied in a more rigorous uh, fashion in the DAD. Uh, this, as you know, is a large uh, cohort, and they had a project where when a patient died, there was a case report form that was filled out, four-page form with the presumed cause of death cofactors, and this was then uh, reviewed centrally and you know, either confirmed or refuted, and then they assigned cause of death. They've had several publications. This is one from 2014, which actually compares two eras in the uh, in, uh, antiretroviral era, an early era, 1999 to 2000, here on the left side of the graph, and then 2009 to 2011 on the right side of the graph. And when you compare those, you can see decline in AIDS-related causes of death um, and, and a rise uh, in non-AIDS cancers and also a rise in, in, a, in a large category called others, which could include accidents, um, overdoses, uh, suicides, uh, and, and things that are not otherwise class, uh, classifiable. So for example, bacterial sepsis and stage renal disease. And actually, if you look at cause of death in the DAD and compare it to what we've measured uh, uh, in our own clinical program, you see kind of a similar uh, pattern where uh, AIDS-related deaths are still a cause of a portion of deaths, liver-related diseases, cardiovascular diseases, and then non-AIDS cancers. 
and perhaps non-AIDS cancers is, 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 is the largest category or is developing as the largest category. I should mention here that AIDS class C deaths can actually be related to comorbidities, of course, individuals with, um, for example, methamphetamine use and are unable to take their antiretroviral therapy uh, for that reason may, may come in with pneumocystis pneumonia and die of an opportunistic infection that was really related more to comorbidities. So I wanted to focus on non-AIDS cancers uh, uh, because I think it is a growing cause of uh, morbidity and mortality. This is a study from about 10 years ago that is a comparison between two HIV cohorts in the United States to a general cancer cohort uh, in the United States. And what this is is comparing the incidence of non-AIDS cancers uh, within these two HIV cohorts compared to this general population cohort and, and generating these standardized rate ratios. And so the way to read this graph is, is that uh, within HIV-positive persons, uh, anal cancer is 43 times that of the general population, 21 times for vaginal cancer, 14.7 times for Hodgkin's lymphoma. And you can see all but the, uh, the, the renal cancer, uh, the 95% uh, confidence intervals uh, uh, did not uh, cross one. Now, when you say something is more prevalent in one group than the other, it doesn't really talk necessarily about the absolute uh, incidence. And so anal cancer is very common in our patient population, but it's a relatively uncommon uh, cancer in the uh, general population. So if you look at it another way in terms of an overall incidence, you can actually get a different picture. So this is a, a cohort of 83,000 persons with AIDS uh, looking at the cause of death uh, in the United States. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was the most common cause of, of cancer death, but in terms of non-AIDS cancers, lung cancer was by far the most common uh, non-AIDS cancer. And of course, I think this points to one area of emphasis in our, in our, uh, in our clinical programs. These are data uh, from the CDC in green from 2011, looking at rates of smoking among men and women. Uh, in the United States, and then uh, in red are expert screenings that we do in our clinic asking about uh, tobacco use, and you can see that, that uh, um, a much higher uh, rate of tobacco use in our patient population than in the general U.S. population. So one thing I did in our program is look back over a six-year period at, at the last 100 deaths that occurred in our program. We have a relatively large program, uh, and actually 32 of those cancer deaths, let me see if I can figure out how to use the, all right, I guess I can't figure out how to use the pointer, uh, but, uh, but this is just listing uh, with the y-axis, just le uh, listing number of cases of uh, both AIDS-defining cancers and non-AIDS-defining cancers. And on the far left is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The only other AIDS-defining cancer on this list is cervical cancer. But of course, there are a number of other cancers here that have important cofactors, which I've listed on the right side of the slide. And tobacco use, viral hepatitis uh, are, are big factors, HPV infection, and so on. So one of the studies that we saw from uh, the uh, uh, recent uh, conference on retrovirus opportunistic infections in Seattle was another uh, DAD study looking at the effect of uh, smoking cessation on cancer risk 
And uh, among ex-smokers, uh, there was a gradual decline in all cancer rates, including uh, smoking-related cancers other than lung cancer. In this uh, study, there was not a difference in lung cancer rates and whether this has to be followed for a longer period of time. But I think uh, it, it illustrates that a program that leads to uh, reduction of tobacco use, tobacco cessation, could be an important part of a cancer screening strategy. So if you look at the uh, uh, table here, I've just listed what might be the components of a, uh, a cancer screening and prevention uh, in an HIV program. Lung cancer, of course, tobacco counseling, low-dose chest CT scanning, uh, oral cancers. We are seeing more and more oral cancers among our uh, patient population. That obviously is oral exams as a screen. Uh, anal cancer, uh, rectal exam, anal cytologic uh, screening with uh, treatment of dysplastic lesions, uh, rect rectal exam and PSA testing for prostate cancer. I, I recognize that PSA testing is more controversial than it used to be. Screenings for cervical cancer, colorectal uh, cancer, melanoma, and liver cancer. And of course, in liver cancer, as, as mentioned earlier today, uh, the importance of hepatitis B and C treatment. But the fact that in a subset of patients, the ongoing cancer risk is not removed, and so ongoing imaging uh, for surveillance. So this leads to your second audience, resp audience response question, and this is just asking about uh, your clinical practice. Do you screen for and treat anal dysplasia in your clinic? And the possible answers are yes in all patients, yes but only in a subset of patients, uh, and Answer three is no. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take us. Can we play all seven minutes? So there's a mixture here. It's, it sounds like maybe about half of you uh, have a program like this and, uh, and maybe half of you don't. This is a, an area of controversy. Uh, the IDSA guidelines on primary care uh, recommend this, but call it a weak recommendation. If you look at the opportunistic infection guidelines, it's a grade C3, which is basically expert opinion. And so there is a, an ongoing study, and, and uh, I, I'm, I'm sure there are sites here and uh, in Los Angeles called the Anchor Study. This is a, a really huge study that is enrolling HIV-positive persons and uh, randomizing them to a treatment arm or an active monitoring arm, and that treatment arm will include uh, high-resolution anoscopy and biopsy of lesions, uh, patient-applied topical treatments, and then various ablative treatments. We do infrared coagulation in our clinic. And then there's an active monitoring arm which uh, is basically uh, observation with, with hopefully uh, early diagnosis of cancer if it develops and rever re referral for treatment. So this, I think, is a single study that will lead to uh, evidence-based guidelines on how important this is in clinical practice. So I want to move on and talk a little bit about cardiovascular events in HIV, and we'll move on to your third audience response question. And the question is, in your practice, what is your threshold to prescribe statin therapy to persons living with HIV infection? A 10-year cardiovascular risk of 7.5%, uh, uh, a risk of 10%, 
Do you prescribe statins to all persons with HIV given higher risks of cardiovascular disease, or do you use another approach? Tangerine trees and marmalade skies. So the 50th anniversary of uh, Sergeant Pepper is uh, this year. So, so uh, most of you use the uh, uh, threshold of, of 7.5%. Uh, um, some of you use the, uh, the the recent U.S. Preventive Service Task Force more uh, uh, of 10%. Uh, and uh, a few of you prescribe statins to all persons with HIV uh, given higher risks of cardiovascular disease. That, that's interesting. As, as you probably know, there have been some studies that have shown a mortality benefit of statins in people with HIV. So you can look at cardiovascular risk in terms of traditional risk factors, and on the left side, these are the risk factors that are listed by the American Heart Association. And on the, the right side are, are HIV-related risk factors. So HIV infection itself and the chronic uh, inflammation that, that is produced. Um, I just mentioned that, that uh, higher rates of traditional cardiovascular risk factors are often present in our population. I just showed you uh, some information about uh, tobacco use. And then there's actually been uh, some association with antiretroviral therapy and cardiovascular risk. We talked about Abacavir earlier today, uh, a recent study uh, with uh, Darunavir. And then there have been previous studies looking at some of the other protease inhibitors. And if you remember back when the initial Bacavir study came out, it also implicated DDI or didanazine, which is a drug that we no longer use. So this is the study from, uh, of Darunavir. I seem to be featuring the DAD cohort quite a bit today, but they've done some important studies. So this was a prospective analysis of patients followed from 2009. Uh, up to 2016. As you can see, it's a large number of individuals. You needed a more recent study because Darunavir is a more recently approved um, uh, protease inhibitor. And the cum cumulative exposure to Darunavir-Ritonavir, but not Adizanavir-Ritonavir, was associated with an increased uh, cardiovascular uh, disease risk in a multivariate analysis, and it didn't seem to correlate with lipid levels. And of course, if you've been following the DHHS guidelines, we just kind of demoted adizanavir because of hyperbilirubinemia, its association with chronic kidney disease, tolerability issues, and had kind of arrived at darunavir as being our one preferred protease inhibitor-based regimen. This is the graph that shows the cumulative risk of MIs in the... Uh, the adizanavir group is on the left, and the uh, darunavir group is on the right, uh, and the right uh, side, of course, shows uh, significance over time and a gradual increase over time. So this leads to another interesting study that was presented at CROI, and uh, this used a term that, that I wasn't that familiar with called the population attributable fraction, so I actually brought the definition up here. So the, the PAF is the contribution or, or the, of a risk factor to a disease or death, and this PAF is a way to quantify that risk. So it's, uh, the PAF is the proportional reduction in population disease or mortality.
that would occur if exposure to a risk factor were reduced to an alternate, alternative ideal exposure scenario. So example, no tobacco use instead of tobacco use. And then they have put these uh, uh, fractions with uh, both uh, traditional cardiovascular risk factors on the left and then some of our uh, common HIV risk factors on the right. And so you can see here um, clinical AIDS diagnosis, uh, a detectable HIV RNA, CD4 less than 200, chronic kidney disease, and on the right here is diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, hypertension, and, uh, and ever smoking. And what they determined is, is that 86% of all MIs in this, in this cohort, uh, type 1 MIs with plaque rupture, would have been prevented had these traditional cardiovascular risk factors on the left had been fully controlled for. So I think it's important to think of HIV as a cardiovascular risk factor, and it's important to, to think about the contribution that antiretroviral agents may have. But the largest reduction in, in cardiovascular disease is going to be our adherence with uh, managing traditional cardiovascular risk factors. And I wanted to mention one, uh, one study that, that kind of illustrates the point. This is from the uh, clinic at UAB, a large HIV clinic. Um, and they did a review of their clinic population and found among 397 persons who were qualified to receive aspirin, only 66 or 17 percent were actually receiving it. And uh, I think this is a, a common issue. I think it's something we've struggled with. Uh, in our program in Denver, where you have programs that are comprehensive HIV clinics that have kind of grown out of uh, antiretroviral treatment decisions, opportunistic infection management, and have not actually maybe fully embraced the primary care role, and we may be missing uh, important uh, opportunities to improve health. And, and ironically, you might be able to score really well on the HIV care continuum and have a really great viral suppression rate, but actually have a higher mortality rate because you're not paying attention to these other uh, uh, outcome measures. There is a, uh, a study looking at the benefits of statin in people living with HIV infection. Very large study, as you can see, 6,500 people, a randomized trial of placebo versus a patavastatin and measuring vascular events. And this is a study that I just think reached its 50% enrollment uh, very recently, and uh, I'm sure there's a study site near you. And I think this will also be a study that helps to definitively answer uh, my audience response question is, should we have a lower threshold for statin therapy in people living with HIV? One of the things I wanted to briefly mention about uh, uh, comorbidities was osteopenia, osteoporosis, and uh, fragility fractures. Um, I just wanted to mention the, the existence of, of guidelines, or at least a statement, that has uh, recommendations and an algorithm for managing osteoporosis. Uh, I just pointed out the low rates of aspirin therapy in Birmingham. I think our adherence with these guidelines in Denver uh, is not where it should be. Uh, but I just wanted to include this uh, for your reference, because it does offer a, a, uh, an approach to screening for osteopenia and osteoporosis. In my remaining time, I want to shift gears and talk a bit about immunizations. 
uh, as another uh, primary care activity in our practice. And that leads to my final audience response question. And so this is, uh, in your practice, which type of influenza vaccine do you provide to persons with HIV? Do you use a standard dose inactivated vaccine, trivalent or quadrivalent in all patients? Are you providing the high-dose influenza vaccine uh, and or uh, are you uh, doing the high-dose influenza vaccine only in patients over age 65? Are you giving the live attenuated uh, influenza vaccine as an alternative or are you not providing it at all? So. In the town where I was born lived a man who sailed to sea told us of his life in the land of submarines. Great. So most of you are using the, the standard influenza uh, vaccine. It looks like some of you are giving high-dose vaccine uh, in patients over age 65. I guess looking at this question, you could, you could have answered uh, uh, either way. Um, I'm involved with vaccine policy at, at our hospital uh, in Denver, and I've been really kind of disappointed at the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices because they're very wishy-washy about this whole subject. And, and they basically say that you ought to give an influenza vaccine. And so they don't really, uh, I think, acknowledge the, the different types of vaccines that are out there, the high-dose vaccine, what its role might be. And, uh, and so actually all three of the first answers would be correct. The live attenuated influenza vaccine is, is technically contraindicated in people with HIV. It's actually been studied, um, but it's, it's, it doesn't seem to be as effective either. Um, and partly, I think part of the reason it's contraindicated is because we have inactivated uh, alternatives. So this is what we know about the high-dose influenza vaccine. We know that it's more immunogenic in individuals 65 years or older. We know it's more immunogenic in persons living with HIV infection. That's been studied. The vaccine has been sh shown to provide better protection against laboratory-confirmed influenza than standard-dose vaccine. And then very recently, a study demonstrated a mortality benefit of high-dose vaccine in the 2012-2013 flu season, but not in the following season. Now, the other, the other uh, kind of recent vaccine development has been the recommendation for uh, the meningococcal conjugate vaccine in persons living with HIV. Um, and I think a few years ago, we were rec recognizing epidemics or, or at least occurrences of meningococcal disease, certain outbreaks in certain parts of the country. Um, but this is really the first kind of blanket recommendation for the meningococcal conjugate vaccine. The risk is actually five or 13-fold higher than the general population, but it's still a relatively low rate of occurrence. But of course, it's a, it's a very uh, serious disease. And so the 2016 guidelines from the ACIP recommend the use of meningococcal conjugate vaccines in all persons living with HIV infection. And this is the table that I've extracted from the, uh, from the MMWR, which just uh, provides uh, some of the advice. You know, one of the things about vaccines that I think is, 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 uh, is not emphasized much in guidelines is whether or not to defer 
vaccines, when people have low CD4 counts or prior to starting antiretroviral therapy, uh, there, there, there isn't a lot of information for a lot of the vaccines. In the body of this paper, though, there is a discussion about the lower immunogenicity of these vaccines in individuals whose CD4 percent is less than 15. So I think it, it, it probably makes sense clinically that if patients are starting antiretroviral therapy and you anticipate immune reconstitution over a short period of time, it may be reasonable to defer this vaccine until that uh, uh, condition, uh, until the immune system improves. But I don't think you'll find that in guidelines, it's just listed. So I've created this kind of modified HIV adult immunization schedule. Um, this is actually going to be part of, of an upcoming case on the web that IAS USA is doing, um, where I've kind of put my spin on uh, influenza, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the immunization schedule. So uh, of course, one dose annually of the influenza vaccine. I think the case for high dose is best in, in individuals over age 65. Um, there are some controversies here. So for example, HPV vaccine up to age 26 uh, among women and men who have sex with men. Uh, but there's an open question out there of whether, we, whether the vaccine at higher ages might be beneficial uh, in either preventing HPV disease or altering the natural history of existing disease. The Zoster vaccine, of course, um, is contraindicated if the CD4 count is less than uh, uh, 200. Uh, but we've been giving it at age 60, which is in line with the ACIP general guidelines. Uh, the pneumococcal vaccine recommendations, of course, are, are uh, fairly complicated to, to, uh, to kind of present to uh, vaccine committees and other providers and so on, but uh, those are important. And then I list the meningococcal conjugate vaccine. One of the issues with the meningococcal conjugate vaccine is it's actually licensed up to age 55. And so if you look at the, the guidelines of the ACIP, they basically say you can give it to older individuals primarily because the need for revaccination, because once you've vaccinated them, you'll boost them in five years. But they don't really address the issue of a 65-year-old patient that comes in and uh, has not gotten the series and whether it's okay. We've actually been giving vaccine to older individuals. When I remember, I counsel them that, that I'm giving them a vaccine that's not necessarily FDA approved for that indication. On the subject of vaccines, I just wanted to mention one other thing, and that is the uh, uh, a vaccine in development. Uh, one of my colleagues at the University of Colorado is part of these studies and predicts that this will probably be available within the next year. But this, in contrast to the licensed live attenuated uh, Zoster vaccine, is a, uh, is a protein subunit uh, vaccine with an adjuvant. and. Uh, uh, in uh, individuals age 50 and over, and also in persons age 70 and over, um, has shown a, a remarkable rate of protection. If you remember the, the, the live attenuated vaccine in that large uh, shingles prevention study had about a 50% reduction in uh, the occurrence of zoster and post-herpetic neuralgia. So this uh, looks to be much better, and it also will get around this issue that we face sometimes in some of our patients where their CD4 count is too low to provide the uh, live attenuated vaccine. And it might help to address another concern, which is can we give this vaccine to individuals younger than age 50? So in summary, I've tried to emphasize a few areas uh, of primary care, obviously not covering a, a lot of those areas. Um, 
outcomes continue to improve, but I think if you still look in 2017, life expectancy among our persons living with HIV infection has still not reached that of the general U.S. population. I think this is uh, uh, in part due to comorbidities, in including those that are listed on this slide. I actually think improvements in the care continuum also will help to reduce uh, AIDS-related uh, uh, causes of mortality. I think areas to focus on in clinical practice are cardiovascular health, tobacco cessation, viral hepatitis treatment, and cancer screenings. When I made some cuts of the talk, I actually had uh, one slide on using the electronic medical record for primary care screenings, but we have this little dot phrase in our electronic medical record for cardiovascular risk, and it's so great because it's like instantaneous, provides you with a 10-year uh, cardiovascular risk. And then finally, general health screening and immunizations are also an important area to emphasize. And these are some references that I think are important. Uh, probably the first two are, are maybe the most important, uh, the primary care guidelines from the Infectious Disease Society of America. And then much of these uh, uh, vaccines and, and management of comorbidities and screening, there's also information in the opportunistic infection guidelines. And with that, I'll stop and be happy to uh, entertain questions or comments. Uh, thank you very much. There is some controversy in lung cancer screening with current recommendations uh, suggesting low-dose CT scan annually in those with 30-pack year history who are greater than 55 years and current smokers. Have you embraced these guidelines or even amplified them by sharing screening at a younger age? Um, I can tell you what I do in clinical practice. I have been using these guidelines and, and exactly as they've been recommended. I have not tried, for example, to Im implement low-dose CT screening in younger individuals um, or, or those with uh, fewer pack years of smoking. I, I would say I have a, a low risk to kind of find a symptom that might justify the use of a, of a, of a CT scan. But I think we've had, we've had some pushback from uh, insurers if we try to do this uh, in, a, in a manner that's different than the uh, Preventive Service Task Force recommendations. Question is, should all HIV-infected men uh, and women, plus or minus women, be treated with aspirin? Um, I, th I think the answer to that is, is no. I'm, I'm not aware of any kind of large evidence-based study that would, uh, um, would, would lead to that. I, um, and I don't know of a study that would be similar to Reprieve that's looking specifically at aspirin. Um, obviously, the use of aspirin is a is a risk-benefit ratio between benefit and, and the occurrence of bleeding. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if anyone else uh, has any thoughts about that. That was kind of a non-answer to your question, sorry. Any other questions from, from the audience? Since uh, CD8 memory cells are a surrogate marker for chronic inflammation, should we be using CD4, CD8 ratio to assess cardiovascular risk? And if yes, what is the threshold for significance? Um, I'm not aware that that's uh, 
something that we would use in clinical practice, so we certainly uh, don't do that. Um, obviously, one of the one of the goals of placing people on antiretroviral therapy, despite um, high CD4 counts, low viral loads, is to uh, reduce cardiovascular risk. But uh, I haven't used the CD4 CD8 ratio uh, actually for anything. Any other questions? I have a question. I wrote it on the card, but I'll just ask you. Oh. Um, I, I just wanted to talk more about anal paps. Um, we had a nice resident come and present to us and left me more confused than when she arrived about the utility. Um, I think probably a lot of clinicians are in that mode as well. Um, I'm sorry, I'm Nettie Aldis from San Ysidro Health Center um, in San Diego. So. I've always dogmatically done it every year because I came from UCSD and we dogmatically did it every year and we had an endoscopy clinic. Um, and so we do it every year and we refer people for abnormal results to UCSD for endoscopy. Um, there's a, another large clinic in town with excellent HIV care that does not do annual pap smears. Um, this resident presentation, like I said, there, you know, there isn't a lot of data to show that it's very useful in actually finding what we're looking to find, although we do know that the risk is higher of anal cancers. We don't know how to find them, nor do we know the significance of co-testing for HPV. So I was curious what other people are doing with their annual anal PAPs, and I've, um, I continue to do them, but I don't know that I'm actually doing anybody a lot of good with them. And I was also curious more about the anchor trial, because that's really people who have a abnormal, right? So it doesn't really address the utility of routine screening. Is that correct? Correct. So, you know, I, I mean, I think this is why we have a study, actually, is that it, that it isn't clear. I mean, it, it's been kind of intuitive, intuitive based on how we screen for cervical cancer, so it seems to have, you know, made sense. And having seen anal cancer as a, as a cancer of higher prevalence, it's made us interested in, in, in doing this, but I, I don't think there's any evidence. Uh, there was a, one study that was kind of a modeling study out of San Francisco that, that suggested that there would be a benefit from, from, uh, from treating anal dysplasia in terms of preventing cancer. But that same center is also the principal investigator for this study. So I think, again, I think it's, uh, it's, a, lot of, uh, it's a lot of investment. Uh, it, it's a procedure that has side effects for our patients. And uh, so I, I think it's fine to, to not do that currently. I think it's fine to do that currently. As a, director of, <laughs> as a director of an HIV program, I do like it because because people are at least getting rectal exams, so at least that part of the body is getting examined. So it, it, it does, uh, and we have detected some anal cancers that uh, by referring someone to that clinic, maybe from a provider who, who wasn't doing regular anal rectal exams. So there is kind of a benefit in just kind of focusing on that area. But I, I think it needs to be studied in a prospective randomized trial, and that's exactly what's happening. But they're only studying people with abnormal anal paths, right? Mm. They're not studying the utility of doing an annual visual exam versus doing no exam. Is that correct? Or I'm not sure. Because mm. I wonder if we just look, do we see the anal cancer, or do we need to do the paths? Because I'm not sure the paths are helping us. That's where I'm stuck. Yeah. Well, there's also the phenomenon that, that I think was also from the group in San Francisco is that, that virtually all of their anal paps were abnormal. So for a while they stopped doing them because, because it wasn't really discriminating between you know, 
individuals that would be screened or not. Um, you know, I, I suspect visual inspection probably won't be as accurate as cytologic screening, but, but you know, again, I think we need, to, uh, we need to do the study. I don't have a better answer than that. Well, thank you very much uh, for your time. Um, before I ask our last speaker to come up, I, I do want to address that one issue with regards to the anchor study, and that is the anchor study is actually a, 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 a screening strategy trial in which uh, patients are uh, assessed, and if they have high-grade intraepithelial uh, lesions in the anus, and they're randomized to be followed on a Q six-month basis versus um, uh, receiving some form of ablative treatment uh, for the high-grade lesion. And then the endpoint is development of anal cancer. So as you can imagine, uh, even with high-grade tumors, it takes a long while for cancers to develop. Uh, so the number of, of um, cases that are, look, are being looked for is about 50 total cases out of 5,000 patients that will be enrolled, and uh, then to see whether there are differences uh, between the two groups. Um, so we're not, you know, it's, it's not that we're following every patient, whether they do or don't have any abnormalities seen on biopsies. It's selectively those people are at, that are at highest risk for developing anal cancer. So one can argue, should everyone be screened with a biopsy, uh, high-resolution anoscopy and biopsies, uh, or is uh, cytology sufficient? And I think, as Stephen mentioned, um, uh, there are quite a few false positive cytologies. And so uh, whether adding uh, HPV testing and, and or biopsies will add anything is also built in within the anchor study. So at the screening visit, those patients, whether we know they have high-grade lesions or don't, all of them get cytologies, HPV, and biopsies. No, no, it, it, yeah, all they need to do is to request the screening, and they'll come in, they'll get screened. If they do have high-grade lesions noted, and that has to be high-grade by biopsy, then they're randomized in the trial. Okay, so there, but there's no, is there a no screening group? I guess we're trying to figure out the utility of doing no. mass screening no, in the clinic no, or not. There is no, you know? no, there is no group that's being followed without any screening at all. I think that's the question is right this before this study is are we is it very useful to do an anal pap on everybody once a year does that help you figure out who to pass on next and so those of us who are doing it are doing anal pap every year on every single patient right. and some clinics are not yeah. I don't know that we know, you know that that's I, the right screening um, yeah, th strategy that recommendation actually came from the New York uh, Department of Health in which they do have a requirement for yearly anal pap uh, testing for HIV positive uh, men now, um, there are no such guidelines anywhere else in the country, and, and it's for just that reason. We don't know whether, in fact, uh, it's going to be cost-effective and whether, in fact, we do pick up um, more, uh, more cancers that way. Um, I know for a fact that you can really pick up most anal cancers through digital rectal examination if they were done on a frequent basis. 
uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't do them. So um, the, the screening anoscopies may be a way of kind of obviating that problem with people not getting their anal rectal, uh, digital rectal examinations, but it's not uh, foolproof. What do you do at UCLA? Uh, well, we're part of the anchor study, oh, well, so, we're, so we're trying to refer people into the trial. But uh, before that, yes, we were, we were screening all of our patients. Initially, we did cytologies, but then found that there were a fair number of false negatives. And so at that point, uh, we're referring all of our patients for, a, a, for an anoscopy, and if abnormalities are seen, then they're biopsied. Thank you. Okay.